Hello, I am Joel McLeod, and welcome to the 905. The saga of the Green Belt is a never-ending story. At least, that's the way it seems in the current political climate. The current progressive conservative government is keenly intent on proceeding to redefining its boundaries and allowing developers to make huge profits off of its development. Right now, the media and all interested parties are looking at the potential grounds for corruption over the implementation of the current government's policies over the Greenbelt. Now, that debate over the Greenbelt seems to stem from a basic tenet of approach to the stretch of land. Is the value of it only in the perceived fiscal potential of housing development, or do we leave it alone and go without the riches that could be obtained through sprawl? What if there was a different way of viewing the Greenbelt? In the height of Doug Ford's 180 decision on allowing developers to build sprawl on the spot of land he had originally said was off-limits, a report came out from the Smart Prosperity Institute last month. The report had input from the Insurance Bureau of Canada on a new way of viewing the Greenbelt. In the Greenbelt, the author laid out a vision for a new way to view the inherent value of the Greenbelt plot of land. Rather than just a piece of land to be developed, we could literally invest our resources, our financial resources, I should say, into the conservation of the land, using its natural carbon sink footprint to build various financial products that are available to the public. Likewise, allowing insurance companies to use its floodplains and wetlands as bulwarks to keep insurance costs down for those of us living in the 905. I am only touching upon a fraction of what the report goes into, but I wanted to know more. So I reached out to the author of the report, Michael Twig, and invited him onto the podcast to share his research and help me and hopefully you better understand this new way of viewing this valuable piece of land in Ontario. Michael is a research associate with the Smart Prosperity Institute. And prior to joining the Institute, he worked at the TransCanada Trail, a nonprofit organization that supports the development of active transportation routes and recreational trails as fundamental to the well-being of all Canadian communities. Michael has also worked at the UN Convention on Biological Diversity and with the Office for Disability Issues at Employment and Social Development Canada. Michael also holds a Master's in Public Environmental Policy. Today, he joins me to talk about the Greenbelt. I'd like to thank uh, Michael Twig uh, for coming on from the Smart Prosperity Institute to talk about his... Uh, well, I, I was going over just before we, we came on the... Uh, on the air here, uh, you're investing in the future of Ontario's Greenbelt work, um, which is a very, it is just, a, I thought, I thought it was an interesting topic or an angle in terms of how to approach the Greenbelt uh, going forward. And I've been wanting to have you on for a, for a little while. <laughs> you finally got around to, uh, to making the ask. Rather than me explaining it to our listeners, why don't I ask you directly, can you kind of summarize what this article is about and what made you want to look into this side of uh of the green belt yeah so uh first just want to say uh, thanks joel for having me on i think uh it's it, it's quite an important issue and and for me um you know having grown up in ontario the green belt is uh, close to my heart so it, it's something that uh has always uh sort of been there since 2005 it's been uh with that protected status uh and the main thrust of our work is to really try and attach this dollar value to the uh, services that are provided by the, the ecosystems or the environment that are in that area. 
Uh, and when we talk about the different service values, we're really talking about things like uh, flood protection, uh, pollination for plants and trees, but even things like recreation. Uh, you know, something that we really found during the pandemic was that everyone rushed out to a park. Everyone rushed out to, uh, you know, a national park, a provincial park, a local park. And these are the types of things that the Greenbelt can offer. Uh, and when you think about mental and physical health, the value of that for, for people during the pandemic, but even continuing to today is, is, you know, it's quite high. It's in the billions of dollars every year. And it's, it's something that we can't give up. We have to keep making sure that we, we we're able to provide that. So, you know, it's social and, and physical health services for, for everyone in the region. And what I found interesting about your, the, this, the work that you authored here is that you're, you're taking those high concept ideas and you're assigning a monetary value to it. Um, like I, I'm, I'll, we'll, we'll provide a link to it uh, in our show notes, people. And if you have the time, I really do recommend just take it, skim through it if you have to, because there's some really interesting ideas in here. One of the one, just for example, and it's something I just I gravitated towards. Um, there's a couple things. One, you you're you're talking about creating like investment uh, 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 products. Because this is you did work with the Investment Bureau of Canada on this uh, this work, and you're talking about taking that, putting investment products so that people can literally invest their money into the green belt in terms of using it as like a, 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 a basically a, 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 bul- a bulwark against climate change and the danger and the, the problems we're going to face down the road. And can you kind of? I'm kind of speaking for you again, but could you, could you give us kind of like you're thinking around that, like how, you know, this is kind of radical thinking in this day and age. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe just uh, one point of clarification. So it was the insurance bureau of Canada uh, that we worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say like, th- there's kind of a two pronged strategy there. So uh, from the financial investor side, a lot of interest. Uh, and, you know, if we were to think about uh, examples in the Canadian context, this isn't a new concept. Um, it just hasn't been applied to this type of thinking yet. Um, so if we think about municipal green bonds uh, in the cities of Toronto and, and, and Ottawa, they are typically used for public transit infrastructure. Now, uh, the more recent uh, denomination in the Portland's redevelopment that was done to actually reduce the impact of flooding in that area and revitalize the waterfront in Toronto had a component of nature restoration that was attached to it. And what we're seeing is that there was more of an interest on the financial side to invest in these types of projects. Main reason being is that it reduces the risk to existing assets. So if you think about it from a financial perspective, it's a win-win situation because you're reinforcing things that people want. I mean, we see, we've seen time and time again that there's quite an important uh, connection to the green belt. I mean, many, many polls have come out recently saying that this is one of the concerns that Ontarians have the most today. Um, but when you attach that financial side to it, when you talk about, you know, billions of dollars worth of infrastructure and that th- these types of projects can not only protect that infrastructure, but make it more resilient in the future, it makes, it, it's kind of a no brainer from that perspective. And, you know, we've been working with major financial organizations to talk about what this looks like. Uh, and then on the second side, I would say, you know, if you think about it from an insurance perspective, it does the exact same thing. If insurance companies have to pay out less and they can invest a little bit of money, whether it's through reduced premiums or through an active investment in the project uh, case by case study, 
it also you know reduces the cost on their side and then provides benefits downstream. Um, the main thing we're seeing is that uh, when we think about green bonds, they're providing either at or above market rates for these types of returns. So you know when you have a level of surety that's at the market rate, there's not really much of a challenge to to make that mental leap from where we are to where we need to be to get the investors on board. And you're and there's another part of the, in the uh, in the PC wrote there's <clears throat> you're talking about the bonds that not just insurance companies or pri- you know private equity firms or, or, or the private sector, but kind of the public could pool resources and purchase into physically. And you know you even mentioned talk things about uh, uh, you know local municipal governments. You know so you think of like um, hypothetically, the town of Newmarket could physically invest in like the Oak Ridges Moraine and, and you know the the areas around their neck of the woods, same as Halton municipalities, you know, I'm thinking like Milton and Georgetown, they can invest in the areas around them, physically invest. But I was thinking that, you know, there's nothing stopping, say, um, uh, you know, a not-for-profit, say, from pooling some resources saying, well, we'll buy a share of that bond. And now we actually have money in physically invested, if you will, into the health and maintenance of the Greenbelt. And it, like, how, you know, how, how do you, how do you, I guess you know, I, I'm I'm kind of flabbergasted because it it seems so simple, but at the same time, I'm like it's such a revolutionary idea to me of like, oh, you know, I actually invest in watersheds and and and, and the farmlands and whatnot. Just tell me tell me your thinking around that, like how? Because I'm I'll be, I'll be honest, I read it and I, you blew my mind here, and that's why I'm kind of talking a million miles miles a second here. Yeah, no worries. I mean, it, it, it it's it's kind of funny because it's. Again, it's something we're hearing a lot that, you know, it seems so simple, but how did it take us so long to get here? And and what we've been finding is it really is um, the challenge of getting people from different sectors talking the same language. Um, so getting people on the development side, getting people in the, on the environmental side, getting financial institutions, insurance organizations, the legal side, really to kind of get to a point where they understand that from moving point A to point B, so investment to conservation, and then point C as the return, uh, that's where the main challenge lies, you know, the structure of what that investment can look like. And I can say, you know, there are other jurisdictions in the world, we can look to our our neighbors to the south, they have successful models that are run on these same principles. Um, Their recreation models are very, very successful in terms of of an investment to outcome and a repayment schedule. Uh, It's really that we, we happen to be a little bit slower moving and applying it to the nature context, I would say, on the Canadian side. Um, but it's also public will and public opinion. I think, you know, I don't want to say we've taken the green belt for granted, but I think we've been very lucky to have it and to have it be a, a government-sponsored initiative. And now that it is, um, you know, there's challenges being applied to it that, you know, we need to address that um, I think is it's making the, the opinion around that kind of be a little bit more realized that something different has to change. And, you know, don't want to, Put the onus on climate change too much, but it's one of the silver linings, if you can say that, is that uh, a lot of different sectors are realizing that they are exposed, there's a risk there, and that this is one of the ways they can mitigate that risk and reduce their costs over the long term. Yeah, and I, I wanted to touch upon that, the the kind of perception of this, because I think, you know, if you if you read the media now, the general idea is that the the, the green belt eventually we're going to have to develop on it. You know, like we're we're in a housing crunch uh, in the province, and we just 
you know what here the fact is we're just going to have to build onto the green green belt to meet the housing demand and this way of reframing that argument of this isn't land to be developed this is land to be conserved because the long term you now the 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 long term return on investment is going to be so much greater than the short term you know building a neighborhood and flipping a profit on some housing what what has been the response to that concept? You know, not just, I think the public will be on board, but you know, in terms of the private sector, what, what has the, the response been to that, that kind of shift in thinking? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. And, you know, I can say again, from, from our perspective, uh, it really comes down to, as you mentioned, return on investment over the long horizon. If, 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 we're looking at, at areas kind of as a blank slate to develop. We're not taking into consideration what they're already providing in terms of a cost return for communities in that area. <laughs> if we if we think about something as simple as, as water quality, you know, every municipality uh, in the province spends money on water treatment and water quality assurances. And a lot of these systems provide natural filtration. So if you just take that one example, the development from that perspective, if it's not done in a way that respects natural water flows and, and you know, sediment control, those expenditures, those costs are going to rise, uh, which means your return on investment over the long term, if you take into consideration all these different factors, will be substantially lower than if you take them into consideration from the outset. Um, so, you know, the response from the private sector, as soon as you start talking about bigger returns, is usually pretty positive. Um, and you know, we're we're hearing the same thing. Uh, you know, on the on the insurance side, those are kind of our two major players um, uh, in this space at the moment. And and you know, on the insurance side, you know, we're we're talking billions of dollars a year spent on remediation from natural disasters. We had the Direco, um, I think it was in uh, 2020, that caused substantial damage. Uh, in southern Ontario. And, you know, would uh, more conservation in the Greenbelt have prevented these types of activities? Likely not, but it would have made them more resilient. Um, you know, you're talking about reduced flooding. So that's that's fewer, less damage to homes, less damage to businesses, less damage to infrastructure. And these are all things where the money can be better spent elsewhere. Um, so, you know, if we're, if we're constantly trying to play catch up, to fix things that are breaking as a result of being more exposed and more vulnerable, we end up kind of depressing or, or reducing the, the growth that we can experience in this region um, as a result of its, you know, kind of like natural dynamic um, attitude and atmosphere. So, you know, if we want to have the region grow and realize its potential, realize its development potential, um, taking these things into consideration from the outset is starting to resonate a lot more uh, with the private sector enterprise. And I wonder, you know, that it's it's fine. I find it interesting from the insurance point of view because you know we had. I live in Burlington. Uh, There's a big story a few years ago about uh, we had flooding, where in a, in a part of the city that just did not flood, and a lot of it was just that's climate. That's that's the effects of climate change. Is that just you know, where the 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 systems that we the natural systems that we had in place just can't keep up with the, with climate change. And there was a big, I could see like there were people like, you know, I don't have flood insurance because I never needed it. I I never lived in a place that that was, that was kind of like, I don't, why would I spend money on that? Now, you know, it's hard to find flood insurance because now you're like, well, now you're prone to flooding. And I guess I, I just, I, 
like I, I, the, the, we're starting to see like kind of that mixture of private enterprise saying, no, the climate change is real. The costs are, there's a very real bottom line to this for not addressing this. And I'm wondering, like, are you seeing a big, I might be putting words in your mouth, but are you seeing, you know, a bit of pressure from these industries say, the clock is ticking. We don't, we can't, this isn't like a nice to do down the road. This is something that, you know, we kind of need to do, find a solution to this now so that we can calculate the costs and fix it into our business models going forward. You know, like I, I, I get a, I'm getting a greater and greater sense that, you know, we're all kind of seeing that this, this is an urgent situation that needs to be fixed or addressed now with tools that we have presently available. What, what are your thoughts on that perspective? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We, we, you know, we're, we're already hearing about, uh, if we take the kind of general financial picture of, of rising inflation at the moment, about uh, the supposed market correction that's uh, assumed to, you know, to happen probably sometime in 2023, we're hearing already the financial sector is building that into the current market rates that they're providing for any type of credit or loan um, aspect. And it's no different when we think about uh, the development angle. Um, you know, if we look at where investments are being channeled, they're being channeled to uh, more conservation oriented or low impact development. Low impact development is, is sort of the new, um, I would say, way forward around how this is being mainstreamed into uh, sort of development conservation uh, joint effort in, in this respect. And yes, it's, it's a now or never type attitude. You know, we're hearing from uh, our financial partners, we're hearing from the insurance sector that, you know, we're at the point where action is necessary. Action, uh, action on the ground is necessary. More, more projects are necessary to get this started. And, and I would say we've done pretty well in um, kind of a case-by-case or project-by-project basis in the Ontario context, but there does seem to be sort of more of a, a cohesive effort for, um, you know, the Greenbelt and the surrounding regions as well. You know, take a look at it, uh, more of an ecosystem-based approach to make sure that we're not fragmenting these 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 resources essentially and you know siloing them off so they're not as productive as they possibly could be for the region itself and that that argument i think is one of the ones that resonates the most if you talk about uh, connections if you think about it in the sort of traditional market supply chains um that resonates a lot with with the private sector and um, yeah, they, they're, they're definitely, there is an urgency and I think that urgency is getting, uh, to be, uh, greater and greater, uh, as, as the days kind of tick by and there's, um, no action on the ground yet. You just mentioned, you know, the, the market supply chain, which is, you know, the, the, the trigger word in the, in economics these days of, uh, and post COVID the, the supply chain. And there's another aspect in this that I, I don't think gets enough play in the media about the green belt, but you do mention it. And I wanted to, I want to give a chance to highlight that. And that is the fact that a big chunk of the green belt is agricultural land. And I know, I think when some people think of agricultural land, they're thinking of the family farm, right? You know, this, you know, mom and pa get up at the crack of dawn to feed the chickens and, and milk the cows and plow the land. And in reality, the agricultural industry is, I don't think it's the largest industry, but it has got to be like, second or third largest industry in Ontario food, you know, from, from farming to food processing and whatnot, you know, the, the, I'm looking at a map right now. We have like down in Niagara region, the wine industry, which is a huge, huge component, not just to tourism, but just exports and, and whatnot. And you're getting into things like craft beer and, and 
whiskey and, and, and distillery and all that. Like it's, I'm just t- t- going the tip of the iceberg. You know, what, what, what is the danger of us neglecting actual, like preserving the green belt and finding a way to make it sustainable? Are like, are, are we going to shoot the, not just our, you know, the, the ecological side, but like our economic foot, you know, like this is a major industry in Ontario that if we just say, hey, you know, good luck to you. We're going to shoot ourselves in the foot when the bill comes due. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's at risk about $4 billion a year in terms of agricultural production, just in the green belt alone. Um, that that's, you know, that's what we're really talking about. And that doesn't really take into consideration the rapidly growing agri-food sector. I mean, that, that sector is growing by leaps and bounds every year. Um, you know, they're adding billions of dollars worth of value to what they're be able to produce based on products that are, are you know, um, um, commodities that are being grown in the green belt region. Uh, and it's prime location is, is, you know, that's one of the things that drives the value It's it's located next to, um, you know, the largest metropolis in the Canadian context, but then also many different uh, cities in the, the Southern States. Um, you know, a lot of our agricultural production in Canada is actually exported outside of our borders. Um, so if we're talking about an economic value, yeah, you know, diminishing this key producing area is, it, you know, the, the to, to make the justification from an economic perspective that reducing agricultural lands for another purpose doesn't really take into consideration the fact that this land is highly productive today um, and it's going to be highly productive in the future. Because, you know, when we talk about agricultural land, but the, just the quality of the land, it has, uh, you know, Southern Ontario has more than half of the best agricultural land in Canada. You know, that's, you know, if we think about it from a national perspective. Southern Ontario is not very big in terms of the wider Canadian geography, but yeah, half of the agricultural land. So if we, you know, kind of remove the fuel from the engine of the agricultural sector in that space, we're, we're going to, you know, there's a risk. There's a risk of, of having an industry suffer and, and lose money. Um, so, yeah, I would say that, you know, if we don't take that into consideration as well, the productivity of this land, but also you know, from the perspective of what we're talking about, environmental conservation is 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 really the the willingness of uh, producers in the region to be on board with more uh, environmentally friendly practices. That's something we're we're definitely seeing uh, in and around the Greenbelt. There's been uh, some great work done um, by the Greenbelt Foundation and the Friends of the Greenbelt to work with agricultural producers to engage in you know soil health, um, you know soil fertility. Uh, reduce soil erosion, um, reduce pollutants that that run into our waterways. Um, so you know we're we're not even only just at risk of losing that economic production. We're at risk of losing a sector that is on board with conserving the green belt and the economic production. It's kind of a dual edged sword here that doesn't cut a good way either way it goes. So on that note, you know what's been the response from uh since you put this out, uh, you know, what, what, what have you been hearing from not just the private sector, but also municipal and, and the provincial and let's even go to the top federal governments on, on the ideas that you're putting forward here. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, the reception has been pretty good. I would say the biggest challenge we've faced thus far with, uh, you know, the three you mentioned is that municipal governments in Ontario are, uh, I would say a little bit overburdened at the moment in turn, terms of trying to scramble to figure out exactly where their the new powers lie that they're able to kind of harness. But, you know, I'm of the 
of the of the mine. You know, we had we we, we did have a, a couple of discussions with folks from in and around the Hamilton and Niagara region, and they were very interested and eager to learn more about the opportunities because they do see um, one of the benefits of having having sort of the keys to the kingdom is that they can engage in this type of work. Um, you know, at the provincial level, they're always looking uh, for more ways to basically reduce the cost on government, but also help in, uh, you know, reinforce enterprise on the ground. And this is one of the ways to do it. This, you know, gets multiple sectors that are often competing. You know, we think about, you know, private enterprise and, and nature conservation and then public works or, you know, public infrastructure are usually um, at odds when we think about the development context, but this is one way where it doesn't have to be. It just requires a more careful uh, consideration up front, uh, and it can really design a you know project or even regional development or growth plan that that you know favors environmental conservation for the sake of providing greater returns down the road, and it makes the the public lift a little bit lighter uh, in the provincial context. Um, and then on the federal side, um, you know this fits exactly with what the federal government is looking to do with their 25 by 25 and 30 by 30 targets. Um, it really kind of, it, it falls in line um, with that strategic objective. And I think it comes down again to how can we make the programs that we're looking to do less dependent on uh, funding that's either, you know, grant funded or philanthropic funded and really get the private sector in there to kind of reinforce any type of variability that you would think about in terms of investment streams in these types of projects. Um, really a response to the COVID pandemic in, in that respect is that, uh, you know, there was a shock to all different types of investment streams as a result of the pandemic. And it really opened the eyes to a lot of players in the game that, you know, we do need more of a diverse investment portfolio or a diverse set of investors in these types of projects because it will help again, to, you know, lighten the public lift on this, but it's, it, it's crucially important. I mean, uh, you know, we, we've, we've had uh, preliminary discussions with Infrastructure Canada and they're on board as a result of saying that this is crucial for the health of Canadian infrastructure long-term. Um, so, you know, we're not even thinking just in a local context, it's, it's very much like a national priority and objective. And that's absolutely, I, I, I can see, yeah, I mean, the need to just, I mean, I'm looking at a map of the Greenbelt right now. You can see all the waterways and the watersheds that feed in and out of it and that go pretty much right through, you know, Toronto, Toronto and Hamilton and, and Oshawa. You can see how it's so vital. I, what, what gets me about this report is how comprehensive it is. I mean, you, we have, we've been talking about the, the inside of the insurance uh, side, you know, uh, protect, uh, mitigation of risk due to uh, climate change, the, the agriculture to the industry. And the last part that I thought was interesting was how, how you can tie it into people's direct lives through you know, tourism and, and recreational use. I mean, the one thing you mentioned at the start was how people are getting out and saying, let's just walk the trails in our own backyard pretty much. And there's a kind of a greater appreciation for the nature around us. And that's something that I always thought was interesting is that you, you know, encouragement of, tourism up there you get once you get people kind of actually actively involved going out to these places you know we don't have to talk about provincial parks or what per se but you know we're talking like resorts uh conservation areas campgrounds and, and those private entities uh, not really a question there's more just a statement of fact <laughs> than anything but it, it's a way of just you know it's a it's what i thought was unique about this approach was that it, it is kind of like you have social economic 
uh, and, and environmental factors kind of all merging together to re- really re- reapproach our, our, our view of the green belt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's exactly kind of what we're trying to hit on the head. I mean, if, if you look at the values in the report around um, what provides the most, most sort of economic benefit, it, it's, it's recreation and tourism. Um, and I would say even that number is likely a little bit on the lower end or, or more of a conservative estimate because it takes into consideration uh, sort of direct consumption. It doesn't take into consideration the businesses that might be attached to that um, or the businesses that may have supplied some type of uh, either transportation or resources that would be, say, you know, you purchase equipment in, in Toronto to then go camping um, in the Greenbelt. It doesn't take into consideration that linkage between those two elements as well. Um, and, you know, it, it really comes down to the fact that we can't really think about these elements in isolation anymore. It's all connected and we're finding it, you know, through our media, through our social interactions, through our daily lives that, you know, we are connected to the things around us. We are connected to those around us. And I think this approach really puts that at the center. It mainstreams that idea that, you know, there's, there's a social connection to where we choose, uh, where we choose to go. There's a, there's a, there's an economic connection. There's a physical connection. Uh, and that really is a driving factor. And if we, if we look, you know, if we can, develop a way to think about those connections and it, you know it might come from a, a project by project basis but if we can sort of see where those flows go and where those connections are um i think we'll we'll, we'll definitely see the number uh in terms of the value of the green belt for those purposes grow uh, exponentially um and and you know to say this again too this doesn't even take into consideration the physical or mental health benefits um which you know are are high we saw that during the pandemic they were high and they they will still be high and I think it's something that that folks are now just starting to become more aware of on their day to day life is getting outside is important. Having a, you know, a park close by is important. Um, and if you don't have a park close by, being having some type of uh, accessible connection to the, uh, a green space or or a natural space um, is is key for your daily life. You know what? I can't think of a better way just to end off the uh, the episode on. Uh, that's a cheery note, which is a. Uh, something we all need these days. So thank you very much, uh, Michael, for coming on. I, I look forward to future work from you on this front and see where, uh, you know, hopefully this, this idea takes root and we start seeing more, more, more investment in the green belt. Cause uh, it, it's just an intriguing way of just viewing this uh, important piece of land uh, in the country. So thank you very much for t- coming on and uh, sharing your work with us. It was a pleasure. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time.
I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.